Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. But uh, we're going to be jumping back in, uh, kind of going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews like we've been doing last semester. And then last week, we kind of re-caught back up with the heartbeat of Hebrews, which was that we need to draw near uh, to Jesus because he's better. And so let me read to you the entirety of Hebrews chapter 8, and then we're going to dive in. And so as we read, I want you to go ahead and begin to think, what is this telling us about how Jesus is better? So let me read says, now the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there, there are the priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he enacts a better promise. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I shall, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. That's Hebrews chapter 8, showing us how Jesus is better. Now, I want to draw your attention first to that last verse that talks about the reality that when something new has come, it makes the former things obsolete. And just to kind of establish that reality for us, I want us to kind of go down memory lane for a little bit, okay? So how many of you in the room are 61 years old? 61, all right. The year you were born, the first A-track tape came out, okay? Before that, music wasn't mobile. This is what made music mobile. Now, what's fun is I'm not 61. Um, so when I thought about A-track tapes, I thought it was A-track tapes. So I Googled A-track tapes, and Google, in all of its mercy and kindness, said, do you mean A-track tapes? I go, yes, and thank you. Uh, how many of you are 51 in the room? 51? 51? All right. The year you were born, a game came out. 
that revolutionized the world. It was called a groundbreaking electronic game that we know as Pong. That was one of the first gaming systems ever by Atari, one of the first games that revolutionized the world. Now, how many of you are 50 in the room? 50, five zero. All right. The year you were born, the first cell phone came out. That guy is no longer tethered to the shackles of the payphone, but rather can be mobile for the first time in his life. He's walking in freedom. Some of you that are my generation might be thinking Zach Morris right now, right? So speaking of my generation, how many of y'all were born in the 80s? So you're roughly somewhere in your 30s, maybe early 40s. How many of y'all are in that? Yeah, my people. Okay, great. When you were welcomed into the world, the height of fashion your for, first introduction to what human beings look like was this. <laughs> this was considered fashionable when you were born. That was the first introduction to fashion. And if you thought that was kind of crazy, men, this was your influence. <laughs> A little flock of seagulls haircut. That was considered the height of fashion. This wasn't just socially acceptable. This was mimicked by our culture because that was the first thing that we were introduced to. And so to say it again, just because something is first doesn't mean it's best. And in fact, when something new comes along, that thing becomes obsolete. That first thing that maybe was good at the time was the first of its iteration, first of its kind, but just because it was first doesn't mean it's best. And so when that new thing comes, the old becomes obsolete. And however much that's true of random technology or fashion trends, it's all the more true with what came before Jesus and Jesus himself. What came before and the newness that we have in Christ. And because Jesus has come, something new has happened that he's come into that space-time moment 2,000 years ago, and he radically changed everything. But he also has come for many of us who have come to know and to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins, that something new has happened not only for us, but something new has happened in us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're not an iteration of what you were before Christ. Something fundamental has changed about who you are. You're a new creation. Why? Because the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet the sad reality for many of us, much like the people who were the first audience members of the book of Hebrews, was that we are often tempted to drift back to our old ways of thinking before Christ. Our old ways of living our old ways of approaching God to try to earn his favor, we are constantly being tempted to drift back to that which was old, obsolete, outdated, even though the new has come. And that's one of the major themes in the book of Hebrews, that the book of Hebrews keeps on doing this parallel comparison between that which was old and that which is new in Christ keeps on presenting these different systems that the, the people of God, the Hebrews, would have wrapped their minds around and wrapped their lives around and kind of had that as the center of their entire socioeconomical religious world. And he says, hey, that was good for the time being, but guess what? Something new has come in Christ and he is far better than anything that's come before. He's not an iteration going from eight track tape to something like 
cassettes. He is something fundamentally different. And so throughout the book of Hebrews so far, we've seen that Jesus is in a completely different category, completely better than the revelation of God that's come before, the messengers of God that come before. He's the better human, the better prophet, the better rest, the better eternity, the better priest. It's overwhelmingly clear that when Jesus has come, he is the new reality. And when he comes, the old begins to fade away in our lives because the new has come. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the reality that Jesus is the better covenant. Something new has come with him. Now, the truth is many of us don't think about that idea a lot, covenant. Uh, But the, the center of the Hebrew worldview was covenant. And we still live as believers in Christ within covenant. And so covenant literally means a binding promise between two parties two individuals that are coming together and agreeing upon a binding relationship that's happening between them two. And what we're gonna see in Hebrews chapter eight, what we just read, was that Jesus is enacting and sealing a better covenant, a better binding relationship between God and humanity. And we see that throughout Hebrews eight in two different ways. That Jesus is the better position but also Jesus assures a better promise. That because Jesus is in a better position, he can mediate this better binding relationship between God and humanity. But within that relationship, he assures this promise with his blood. And the hope for us this morning, for all of us this morning, is that we would leave here beginning to really think through, hey, what are ways that I approach God that are actually indicative of my life before Christ? old, outdated, ineffective. And that we would begin to sing and celebrate that the new has come. So that's what we're looking at this morning, that Jesus is the better covenant. And so the first thing we see is that he is in the better position to enact this covenant, this binding relationship. And we see that in Hebrews 8.1. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. And so this passage begins with this acknowledgement that, hey, there's a point that we've been trying to make all along. Now, Hebrews 8 follows Hebrews 7. Shocker, right? And for us, that's been like two months since we've been in Hebrews 7. But remember, this was a sermon that was given. All of Hebrews was a sermon by a pastor who deeply loved his people. And so they would have heard it instantaneously after, but it's been two months for us. And so let's just remember what Hebrews 7 was all about. Hebrews 7 was about how Jesus is this better high priest. And a high priest was an appointed position that was there to connect God with humanity. And the whole argument in Hebrews 7 is that Jesus is fundamentally different than anything that's come before in how we connect from God to humanity because he's not just human trying to connect to God, but he is fully God and fully human connecting God and connecting us to one another. And so that's what Hebrews 7 has been saying. And then what we see now in Hebrews 8 is explaining that because he's connecting them, he himself is this better binding relationship. He himself is the better binding covenant between God and humanity. And the first thing it's gonna draw our attention to is the reality that he's better because he's in a better position. 
And so we see, hey, Hebrews 7 was talking about the better high priest, but then it's going to explain to us why he's in that better position. And the first thing it says is that he's seated. He's seated. Now we can read past that pretty quickly, but here is what that's trying to communicate to us. And here's how the Hebrews would have read it. That because Jesus is seated, that what's that declaring is that his work on earth is finished. It's been accomplished. Now, how did I get that? Well, because he just started talking about the high priest. And what the high priest would do is they would go into this temple, this tabernacle, once a year. And in that temple, in that tabernacle, there was no seats. And that was purposeful. Because in the Hebrew mindset, to sit down meant that your work was accomplished. Your work was done. And so there was purposely no seats in this tabernacle because they had to go day after day after day into this place to offer sacrifices for God. And it was never enough. It was never complete. It was never final. But then what Jesus did after he died and rose from the grave is what did he do? He sat down declaring that the work is done. Which is why Jesus says in John 19 on the cross, it's finished, it's done, it's accomplished. What you need to enter into heaven, the work that needs to be done has already been accomplished in Christ. And so we don't work into heaven. We trust the work that was done for us in Christ. And so I don't know if you're in here and you're just tired of trying to win God's approval or win God's acceptance or being tempted to drift back into that old way before you came to Christ. You focus in on the reality that the work that's, been, that's needed for you has already been done. And heaven's gates are swung open for you because of Christ. So that's why his first position is better. It shows that he has finished the work on earth. But it's also better because of where he's sitting. It says he's sitting next to the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That shows his relational connection with the Father. To sit at the right hand was a position of power, of privilege, and an authority. And this is saying that Jesus sits in all power and all authority because he sits next to God the Father. In the old system, one guy once a year would be able to go into the presence of God on behalf of everyone else. But Jesus, because of where he sits, he has full and final access. And he grants that to anyone who trusts in him. Like pause for a moment. If you have trusted Christ, you have full access to God because of him. Are you taking advantage of that? Are you just trying to figure out do better, make your own decision, and you feel the weight of that instead of taking that weight to the throne of grace and finding help and mercy in your time of need. He's better because of his relationship with the Father that he grants to us. But then finally, it says that he's better because he's also a, a minister in the holy places. That what this is showing us is that Jesus' work on earth is finished, it's accomplished but his work in heaven is ongoing. Because in verse three through five, what we begin to see is that this, 
Jesus has entered into the most holy of holy places, which is heaven itself. And we're gonna talk more about what three through five is alluding to next week. But for now, what we see is that Jesus who sits in that position of all power, of all authority, of all might, of all love, is taking all of that energy, all of that power, all of that privilege, and he is pouring it out on you. Not to destroy you, not to judge you, but to bless you, to strengthen you. And how Romans 8 says to pray for you. That Romans 8.34 says Jesus Christ is the one who died and more than that, he was the one who rose. He conquered death and he is now where? The right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding on our behalf. That Jesus right now, his ongoing ministry in heaven is to pray for you, to strengthen you. And that's why we pray to him. It's because he's already praying for us. The only other time that we see, see Jesus not sitting in heaven is when in Acts, Stephen was martyred. And Stephen is coming up into heaven and Jesus stands to welcome the believer. Jesus is working on your behalf right now. And so here's reality. I don't think many of us are like tempted to go back today and be like, man, I'm just, it's boiling up in me to go and slaughter a goat. Just imagining that that's not our ditch, all right? But here's what I see in kind of North American 21st century Christianity. What I see is this, we are really good at developing systems that we then abide by in order to measure how we're doing with God. And so we develop this idea of going, man, if I go to church enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I pray enough, if I'm not as angry as I was five seconds ago, enough. And what we do is we actually revert back to an old system of thinking and of living and interacting with God. And guess what? It's exhausting. And we're always running and never arriving. And so we wanna drift back to that. And the more we live in that system, I guarantee you, God is always gonna feel distant. So you're trying to work your way to him. You're always gonna be exhausted. It's always gonna feel like you gotta keep going and keep moving to prove yourself to God or to someone else. And it's tiring and it's exhausting. And something fundamentally new has come in the person of Jesus Christ that the work that you need for your salvation, it's done, it's finished. Like every single world religion, do this, do this, do this. Jesus goes, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished. And so we don't do in order to win God's approval or win God's smile, we walk in the reality that we already have it because of Christ. And when we see that and we walk in that, we then live a life that's marked by that love. And the list takes care of itself. And we actually begin to be the type of people that God is creating in us that are full of joy, full of peace, full of love, and do the very things that he loves and avoid the things that he hates, not to win something, but rather because we already have it. That's the love of God. And we have this access to him because Jesus is sitting in this better position for us, connecting us. 
There is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. He enacts a better covenant, a better binding relationship between us and him because he is better, and he sits in a better position. And because of that better position, he assures us a better promise, a better promise. And that's where the rest of the chapter goes. That continuing on in verse six, it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that's just like a little bit better than what was before. No, it's much more excellent. And in case you've been drifting for a moment, wake up. I put this in a 150 point font to make it as clear as it can be, because that's what the passage is doing. Over 30 times in Hebrews, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better. It's meant to wake us up to this reality that these systems that are exhausting us, he is much more excellent. He's not an iteration. It's not going from A-track to like cassettes or Napster. It is going from a track to going to the concert, getting pulled up on stage, and all of a sudden you realize you have an amazing singing voice, and you're singing with the band, and then y'all are best friends for the rest of your life. (laughs) That is a fundamental difference, and that's what he's trying to get across to us. It's not just going, man, I like my old a track. I don't know if the cassettes are going to keep going. No, there's something so much better much more excellent. And what is that? Better covenant, a better relationship, a better promise. That's what we see here. And in order to even appreciate that a little bit more, we need to look at this idea of covenant throughout our scriptures and do a little covenant 101. See, one of the major themes of scripture is the theme of covenant. And in that alone, you see the heart of God that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And when he makes a promise to us, he doesn't always fulfill it instantaneously. And in that gap between promise and fulfillment, he's inviting us into trusting him in the waiting. And so the people of God who were freed from Egypt in the book of Exodus, they are brought out of slavery and they're so told, hey, there's a promised land that I wanna bring you into, but here's reality. I'm gonna make a promise with you, a covenant, what's referred to in the scriptures as the Mosaic covenant. And he tells them this on Mount Sinai. He tells them, now therefore, Exodus 19, five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is the Mosaic covenant. He's saying, hey, if you obey me, if you obey my covenant, if you obey my rules and my statute, then this is what I'll do for you. You'll be my treasured possession. And you'll be a kingdom of priests to the world. I'm gonna treasure you, but then you're gonna be a conduit to the world so that they can know my love and my grace and my generosity. And so God gave them the law. You ever wonder why there's so many laws in the Old Testament? 613. It's because God is showing them, hey, if you walk by this, if you obey this, then this is the exchange that we're gonna have. This is called a conditional 
covenant. God is conditioning them, going, if you do A, I will do B. But we've read the rest of the Old Testament. And they didn't do A. They failed. They didn't abide by the rules of the covenant. And so that's why we are told in Hebrews that there is a fault in the covenant. And the fault wasn't in God. It was in us. It was in God's people. It was in the Hebrews. It was in humanity. And that's why Hebrews will quote Jeremiah 31. It says, for if the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant it's talking about, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that was made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them into the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in their covenant, in my covenant with them, my relationship with them. They broke their end of the bargain, and so I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. They didn't do A, so I didn't do B. And so here's the beauty of our God, is that when his people failed, God made a way, a new way, a better way, a better promise, a better covenant, a new covenant. And that's where the passage goes next, that this covenant wouldn't be like something before, it would be better, it would be much more excellent. You see, the old covenant, God's law was written on stone tablets, but for the new covenant, God's law was written on our very hearts. That's what the passage says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. That something fundamentally new has happened with God to us. That so many of us, when we think the word law, we think like, go do better. But the word law in Hebrew is Torah. It literally means the instruction of God, that God wants to guide you and navigate you through life. And as you act in a posture of trust towards them, you go, God, it doesn't make sense for me to go left, but I'm going left because you told me to. And that's called obedience. And so in this process, we see the very love of God. Because Jesus will say that the entire law, everything I was after was that you would love God and love people. And yet they didn't and we don't. No matter how much we see it, no matter how much we read it, God knows something intrinsic about the human heart and the human life. That no amount of information and data can actually change our desires. That we are desired, built creatures. That we will naturally follow our inclinations and our wants, no matter how much we know we shouldn't. And that's why it says that he wrote them on their minds, but also on their heart. The heart was the seat, not just of the affection, but of the will, of the desire of humanity. He knows that to change you, he's got to change something fundamental about you. And it's your desire. And we know this. Like, have you ever tried to white knuckle your sin away? Just like tried really, really hard. Like, okay, I'm gonna do it. My la last time, Lord, last time. And after lying to God in that, we go and do it. Why? Because we can't. We can't white knuckle our sin away. 
And so one or two things happens when we try to do that. One, we, we are introduced with reality, which is what Romans 7 says, that the whole purpose of the law was to be a mirror to us to show us that we can't do it on our own, which is the whole point of the cross. And then Galatians will tell us that the law was actually there as a tutor, as a guide to point us to the person of Jesus, that we would go, man, I can't do it, but God wouldn't leave us there. We would look up, we would see Jesus. Oh, he did it. And because now as a believer, he lives in me, he's given me the power to say no to the things that God hates called sin and say yes to the things that God loves. And so God knows this. What happens to a lot of us though is we begin to white knuckle it and then all we've done is taken this rabid dog and caged it. And so I hear it all the time, man, man, I haven't looked at it porn in years. I haven't drank in years. I haven't been short with my kids in minutes. But man, I want to. I want to. And all we're declaring in that moment is that we've cleaned ourselves up on the outside, but the inside is still broken and it's still dead. And so congratulations. You're a Pharisee. Jesus will say in Matthew 23 that you are like whitewashed tombs. Man, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's something intrinsically broken in you. But the good news is I want to breathe life into you and to create something fundamentally new in you because I don't want you just to cage the dog in you, the rabid dog in you. I want to take it out back and old yeller it. You want that dog around your kids? It will wreak havoc. And so God says, I have to kill that in you, that desire, but I'm gonna replace it with something new. That's why Ezekiel tells us, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statue and be careful to obey my rules. God knows that you don't need new rules, you need a new heart. Amen. The beauty of our God is he's given us that. New desires, new hearts, new taste buds. So God has given that to us. But the passage isn't ending there. It says from there that instead of just one person having access one time of year, the new covenant shares that we collectively as people of God can have access to God at any moment of any day, that we can walk in a nearness and a knowing of God. Verse 10 says that, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, hey, hey, go, go know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You don't need to go to a pastor, a preacher, a priest to have access to God. You have unprecedented access to the God of the universe because of Jesus Christ. You have the distinct privilege to access the throne of grace and to draw near because of the position and the promise of God. I grew up Roman Catholic. And so I was told for much of my life, hey, you, you wanna go have access to God? Go to a priest. You need to confess your sins? Go to a priest. Hey, you wanna know God's will for your life? Go to a priest. And that might sound crazy to some of us, but there's 1.2 billion professing Catholics 
that are being told that. And you might not be in here being tempted to go to a priest, but so many of us, we want to go to these other means as our like primary connection to God. I'll read a Christian book. I'll listen to a Christian podcast. I'll follow a Christian influencer. And I'll read all these different things about God. But if we're not careful, we will consume Christian things and miss out on Christ himself. It's like me going and just following my wife on Instagram, but never having a conversation with her. There will be something fundamentally broken about that relationship. And with Christ, something new has come, a nearness and a knowing of the very God who created you and loves you. The last thing we see is that the old covenant was about these continual sacrifices for our sins. But the new covenant is God forgiving and forgetting fully and finally our sin. Verse 12 says, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Some of you walk around under the frown of heaven. That you might be a believer in Christ, but the guilt and the shame of your life and of your past just haunt you. And you walk around with the very shame that Jesus died for, to take away. And what we have here is the reality that when Jesus died on the cross, God would remove your sin from you, past, present, future, and he says, I'll remember it no more. That doesn't mean that he's forgotten about it. That means that he doesn't define you by that anymore. That you are not defined by your actions and what you have done, what you have thought, what you have felt. You're defined by Christ, his sacrifice, his love, his grace, Psalm 103 declares, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. East to west is infinite. You can never walk east and start walking west. (laughs) You can walk north and start walking south. You can walk south and start walking north. But you start walking east, you'll never arrive at west. He's taken it away and he doesn't define you by it anymore. This is the gift of the new covenant, the new relationship, that God's law was written on our hearts, God's nearness to know him, and God's forgiving and forgetting of our sin. The old has passed away, the new has come. Do not drift backwards. It's much more excellent to walk in this freedom than to walk in some weird system to grade ourselves on how we're doing with God. Now, however amazing all of this is, there's one more thing that I think just makes it all the more amazing. Everything that I just talked about for the believer, for the person that's come to know Christ and trust in him, this is unconditional. You remember the old covenant was conditional. If you will, then I will. But something has fundamentally changed in our relationship with God something new, and it's no longer conditioned, but rather it's something we receive, not something that we do, but something that God has done on our behalf, because he declares in the new covenant, I will, I will, I will, I will. Something new has come. The heart of God, as you read throughout the scriptures, is a Hebrew word called hesed, 
we translate it love. But it's so much deeper than that. It's literally translated covenantal love. That when God looks upon humanity, he wants to give them a promise. But that promise is rooted in the reality that he loves you. And when you embrace that, you trust in that, you live by that, then you will see that the things of this world are growing strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And that's where it ends. At Hebrews 8.13 says, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The first hearers of this were tempted to drift back to old ways of thinking, old ways of living, old ways of interacting with God. But something new has come. And so what I want to invite you to think about, to pray about, to talk to your spouse or roommate or community group about, is what are you doing in your relationship with God that is obsolete and ineffective? Are you trying to follow the law by your own self-effort, white-knuckling it? Or are you walking in the newness of life as you're submitting your life to the Spirit of God that's in you, that is going to navigate you, that's gonna change your desires, change your taste buds, to love what God loves and hates what God hates? Are you feeling distant from God? He just feels distant right now. Or are you walking in the reality that you can know God and be near to God because he's already near to you? He's placed the spirit of God into your very hearts that's crying back out, Abba, Father. Are you trying to earn God's forgiveness by things you do or clean yourself up or the amount of religiosity you do? Are you walking in the freedom that forgiveness has been purchased for? For me in my life, I know there's been moments, I mean, I grew up in Roman Catholic Church, and so my first approaches to God were, hey, do this, and maybe God will love you, maybe God will like you. And then something new happened in my life. It was Christ. He met me in my broken system, and he said there's something new. And it's completely different. Not rituals, but a relationship. And yet, two decades later, as I've been walking with him, as he's beginning to change my desires over and over, there's times that I just stop remembering how beautiful this new gift is. I stop spending time in God's word the way that, I, that, that helps me to remember. Stop praying, so I just begin to drift. And when I drift, I just kinda go back to try to win God's smile, win God's approval. And I do that because I feel in the moment I don't have it. So I just go search for it. Maybe from y'all. Maybe from my wife. Maybe from my kids. Just kind of give me that affirmation because I don't feel like I have it right now. And what I need in my life is habits of remembering. Habits of remembering that I have full and final access to the God of the universe because of Jesus Christ. That he loves me and it's unconditional. And so I don't need to go and clean up me. I just need to come to him. And I can do that through prayer. I can do that through meditating on his word. I can do that through reading and studying his word. I can do that through serving. There's so many different avenues that we can take. Just habits of remembering. Not to win God's smile. I did my Bible study today. But rather I get to see the God of the universe as I spend time in his word. 
with his people as I walk by his spirit. The old has passed away. The new has come. And the new covenant shows us that we have full and final access to God because of Jesus Christ. We don't need to earn our approval. It's already been accomplished. And so let's walk by that. I am his and he is mine. The old is gone. The new has come. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.